The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Cardio Tech 4 Northwest. Cardio Tech Good morning. Oh, morning, Doc. You looking better? Well, good night's sleep, and I'm a new man. <laughs> well, this is looking better today, too, or your vitals are back to normal. You know, a lot of doctoring is pretty simple, really. You make sure the patient is breathing, has a pulse. Two of what he's supposed to have, two of. Ten of what he's supposed to have, um, ten of. <laughs> you have nice hands. Thank you. You must have a pretty hard head. Those who know me best all say so. I think we can get rid of this. How does that feel? Uh, a little stiff. I think you can check out whenever you want. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but you know, there's possibly no other topic I can think of that more depresses and frustrates me than the whole subject of socialized health care. The very term socialized health care is practically a contradiction in terms, and I have yet to see anything positive to result from any of the debates, public events, workshops, or other forums dealing with the issue. And yet here I sit about to spend the entire duration of today's broadcast on this entirely depressing topic, right after I remind and encourage you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now, before wading into this whole discussion of socialized medicine, let's make it clear from the beginning that at no time whatever during our discussion am I ever specifically criticizing the skills, knowledge, or actions of the doctors and nurses who are forced to deal with the obstacles thrust upon them by the whole socialized medical system. And that goes basically the same for the patients. In fact, when it comes right down to it, all discussions about socialized health care are never about the quality of the health care itself, but about how to affordably pay for it and how to get reliable access to it. For many, this distinction makes the debate confusing and unfocused. Critics and opponents of socialized health care are often seen to be the enemies of patients who have limited resources to access expensive health care treatments, while many patients who have already been fortunate enough to receive the treatment they needed will report positive experiences that people will equate with the health care funding model and not with the actual care itself. So you can see how easily these two issues can become confused. A lot of people avoid entirely any suggestion that the care they received, whether good or bad, would have been just the same had they paid for it privately instead of having been paid out of the public purse. 
an entirely separate issue. In fact, those of you who have been fans of the show for some time now may recall our December 13, 2018 broadcast about the miraculous recovery from sepsis that my daughter Danielle Metz experienced after spending the better part of three months in the intensive care unit up at University Hospital here in London, Ontario. The catch-22, of course, was that in order to receive this kind of excellent care, she had to suffer total cardiac arrest after having been misdiagnosed and discharged from the hospital on her previous visit only a week earlier, relating to her same flu complications. And as I just learned over the past week as I was preparing for this show, Danielle had a very different hospital experience from the one just cited when she was taken to the hospital in 2012 for a kidney and liver infection and was left on a gurney in a darkened side room, left there with a pile of her overnight luggage tossed on top of her and which she could not remove because of her condition. At 3 a.m., someone finally wheeled her into another room on the fifth floor where there was no privacy, surrounded by other people who were experiencing symptoms like vomiting and defecating on themselves, and the minute she had enough energy to move, and against the wishes and advice of her doctors, she walked out of that hospital as soon as she could to return home to recover in a much safer and less stressful environment. So let's begin our broader discussion with some selected samples of the symptoms of the disease, the social disease of socialized medicine, as we're seeing it daily described in the pages of our local newspapers and news reports. This one, More Patients Wait for Hip Knee Replacement by Jennifer Beeman, London Free Press, March 19th. London area worst in Ontario for meeting a 182-day benchmark. Consider the length of the benchmark to begin with. Quote, the London region, southwestern Ontario's medical capital, ranks worst in Ontario and near the bottom in Canada in timely access for patients to hip and knee replacement surgery, new national figures show. End quote. Apparently, our area comes in at 57 to 59 percent, meeting the target compared to a provincial average of 79 percent and 84 percent. Now, in response to this article, letter to the editor writer Monica S. from London wrote under the heading Useful Surgery Wait on April 1st, quote, I'm awaiting my first knee replacement, no surgery date yet, but I know it will be within the next year. I feel fortunate that I'm able to live where I do, despite the long wait. Our medical system is still great despite the wait. People who live in third world countries fare much worse than us, end quote. Well, isn't that nice? we aren't as bad off as the third world countries. And she's still waiting, of course. In another letter to the editor-writer, Kim R. from Burgessville wrote, under the heading, Surgery Delayed, on April 3rd, quote, I was supposed to have hip surgery done in Woodstock on February 19. I went to the doctor in January 2018, that's a year ago, after having cortisone put in my hip for the pain. At that time, I was offered a hip replacement in 2019. I received a call saying that my hip surgery was cancelled due to running out of money. Now I've received a letter saying my hip surgery is rescheduled for August 25th. When you're in excruciating pain because of your hip, you cannot put your own shoes on. It makes everyday life a very hard task, end quote. And again, by reporter Jennifer Beeman in the April 18 London Free Press, heading reads, Healthcare panel hears patients' tales of pain and woe. Quote, one man was stranded in a Miami hospital for days because no beds were available in London area hospitals. 
A London man awaiting a knee replacement was marooned on a wait list for more than two years. An open-heart surgery patient with a binder of her own medical records was forced to coordinate her own home care needs. Even with extreme illness and fatigue, it is incumbent upon me as a patient to bring my own health records with me when I'm seeking treatment, said Paula H., holding an orange binder of her health records dating back to 2010 when she underwent open-heart surgery. How is it that a digital solution is not integrated across all health systems in Ontario, she asked. How is this system putting the needs of patients first? End quote. Well, maybe she's forgotten all about Ontario's e-health program, which was one of the many scandals involving Ontario's previous Liberal government, which, after wasting millions of taxpayer dollars, was still unable to create a functioning digital database through which patient records could be accessed. Another headline, Paramedics ER Tie-Ups Unsustainable, Chief says. Again by Jennifer Beeman, London Free Press, February 21st. Barely two months into 2019, reads the article, quote, The London Area Ambulance Service is on track to match its worst year on record for delays while dropping patients off at city emergency rooms, London's paramedic chief says. February's not even over yet, and already ambulance offload delays at London Health Sciences Centre's University and Victoria Hospitals have cost the Middlesex London Paramedic Service so much time it's equivalent to a round-the-clock ambulance crew working 28.5 days straight. Last month, hospital offload delays cost the paramedic service the equivalent of a 24-hour ambulance crew working for 32.5 days, on par with 2017, its worst year on record for delays. It's not sustainable, it's not viable, paramedic service chief Neil Roberts said, end quote. And then this one by Jonathan Yuha, who writes in the London Free Press on May 13th, Ambulance service hit with new source of delays. Backlog of patients is wasting staff hours at hospital in Strathroy. Quote, it's a new pressure point in a part of the London area healthcare system already pushed to its limits. For years, paramedics in the region have faced offload delays, forced to stay with their patients because the hospital emergency rooms in London are backlogged and can't immediately take them, that are now on pace to match their worst ever. The delays keep those paramedics from answering other calls. As of May 1st, the paramedic service says there were 137 offload delays in Strathroy, costing the service the equivalent of more than two days around-the-clock coverage by an ambulance crew. That's small compared to the problem in London, where paramedics lost the equivalent of 77 days of service for one ambulance crew in the first three months of the year. Paramedics are also seeing increases in London in the number of code-critical coverage events, where there are only three ambulances available for service and code-zero coverage events when no ambulances are available. Now, that's in a city of almost half a million people, folks. Think about it. The area's growing and aging population and lack of alternatives to divert patients from the emergency room are among the key factors contributing to the Strathroy Hospital's offload and discharge delays, said Rosemary Freitick, Vice President of Clinical Service at Middlesex Hospital Alliance, which manages the Strathroy Hospital. The emergency department becomes the front door because we're always open, so if they can't get in to see their primary care doctor, some of those patients present to our emergency department, she said, end quote. So if all of this so far seems rather academic or unreal to you, 
I would strongly recommend that you take the time to watch Steven Crowder's 2009 YouTube video called The Truth About Universal Healthcare, which will bring you the experience of millions of Canadians with their healthcare system to life for you. It's absolutely spot on the money in describing just how bad it can be for those seeking medical help for any ailments, particularly that are not immediately and urgently life-threatening, and I've been through this experience myself. Up next is a sampling of that presentation, which I should point out was filmed in the province of Quebec, where the experience is just about the same as that you might find here in the province of Ontario. And keep in mind that this was 10 years ago, and things are far more rationed and worse today. As president, I will sign a universal health care plan into law by the end of my first term in office. Which is why I've decided to go through the socialized Canadian healthcare system with a couple of my favorite Canadians to show you exactly what it's really like. That's Tim, my longtime best friend and a born and raised Canadian. And that's John, my other best friend. He just happens to have a Canadian Medicare card as well as a lot of free time on his hands. So he was perfect for the job. Now it's important to know that this was all done guerrilla style. Unlike other filmmakers armed with full crews and scripts, we wanted to get true, authentic reactions and show you folks what it's really like to get treatment in a socialized healthcare system. All right, first things first, we wanted to head down to the local clinic and see what kind of treatment we'd get there. But it was the weekend, and as people in the emergency room later told us... So I guess the clinic is closed uh, on Sundays or weekends. Weekends, it says. Uh, I guess we're gonna have to go to the hospital. Tim, uh, time. Okay, so it's 1.06, and uh, we're going to the hospital now in Quebec. Let's see what that's like. Come on. Uh, not super urgent, so the clinics are closed. So we, this is, um, uh, we wait? Okay. So we were told to grab a number. Yeah. 770. Um, I don't know how long it'll be. This is what? What'd you call this? Triage. The triage? Oh, so. Okay. <laughs> this what does is that mean? triage. That means we wait and we get judged by the nurse and we decide how important we are. Excuse me. Can you tell us approximately how long the wait's going to be? Two hours or ten hours? So between two and ten? Oh, she's going to tell us? Okay. Thank you. Until finally, we got to see the nurse. Uh, English. What's the problem? Uh, I hurt my wrist uh, skateboarding. Can you move it? Uh, yeah, but I get numbness just to make sure that nothing sure is wrong. Nothing okay. is serious at all. You want to make sure you have to wait your turn. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. I'm just taking the, yeah. uh, all the... Uh, sure, yeah. Your relative in? I'm his, uh, his partner. So a lot of waiting today. So which days are usually the shortest or the longest days for waits here? No days. No? All day night. All day night. It's always long? Yeah. Yeah. Now once you see the nurse, of course, you have to wait again for a doctor. And uh, as a lady at the front desk had told us, that could take a while. It's been an hour and a half so far. We just saw the nurse. And uh, they're about to send us to, well now we're just on another waiting room waiting for the doctor. And uh, they can't give us an idea as to how long the wait's going to be, between two and ten hours. So now we wait. We'll keep you posted. So we waited. And waited. 
Until honestly, I realized that uh, PJTV doesn't pay me enough. All right, so we just left the uh, hospital. We had been waiting for, uh, say, at least four hours, and uh, a guy with a broken clavicle uh, who was in there, it took him uh, five hours for a turnaround to finally get his care, and uh, they finally couldn't do anything. They just told him to go see uh, an orthopedic tomorrow. And uh, there was another guy in there who was waiting nine hours for penicillin, so considering that Tim had a uh, what we thought might be a broken wrist. He wasn't such a high priority and we were not going to wait around for nine hours today. But uh, we'll give the clinic a shot tomorrow. Granted, emergency rooms can always be really tough to deal with, but what if a Canadian wanted to get something simple done, like a blood test? Well, it just so turns out that John wanted to do just that. He wanted to test his cholesterol levels, but doesn't have a family doctor. We went to the local clinic to find out what he needed to do. Just in line here for the clinic. Wait to get into the parking lot. And of course, more long waiting ensued, but uh, this time we came prepared. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Screwed up backwards. Pansies, I spot with my little eye something that is red. I spy with my little eye something that is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, found it. <laughs> Is this for your life? Until finally, we were able to see the nurse. At least this time she was friendly. Why did you come here today? Uh, I was looking to get a blood test. No, don't do it. I don't do it here. No. I can't get a blood test here? No, if you're sick, maybe we can see if we well, need that, but no for it. I see it for it. Well, he doesn't need a blood test here. He needs to get a slip. Yeah, can I get a blood test at the CLSC? Okay. And he doesn't have a family doctor. Okay, because if we ask the blood test here, the doctor that prescribe blood test need to make um, a CV, you need to be your patient, okay? Right, but it's hard to get a family doctor yes, and he doesn't I have know. one. But the only thing that you <coughs> can do is just call in the um, phone uh, number. No? I did. I, okay. I and just ask how the clinic if they have family doctor and give your name to the list that they have. I did that like three months ago. Yes, and but maybe it's like two, three years. Three years yeah. to get a doctor? But you're, you're young, so you have the time. Normally don't that, they don't have problem at your age. They suggested I get a family doctor, but I'm, that's what I was calling for. And yes, now you need to wait. So, or, or you go in the clinic privy. privy uh, okay. Privy. Is there one near here? Yes. That's, yeah. where you, that's where you have to pay? Yes, it's nine, 900 cost for your, you have a health checkup, okay? Okay. And with that... Uh, $900? Yes, 900. Wait, did she just recommend what I think she did? P paying for better health care? What if I went right now to a CLSC and I couldn't just I'm wait? Not sure. No? I'm not sure because the doctor that they have there, it's, they, they have the, the patient that they need, so... They don't want any more patients? You can try, but I don't, I don't, and you, you live where? Greenfield Park. Greenfield Park? Yeah. So where do you say, let's see, what's out? There's one in St. Lambert. Okay. Yeah. You can try, but I'm not sure, but they, they do. Okay. Okay. Well, you heard her. We didn't want to wait two to three years to see a family doctor, so we decided to take our chances at the CLSC. Who knows? 
Maybe some Canadians get lucky, right? Okay, to see a doctor here is between 9 and 12. Friday that we are close. Okay. Yeah, it's always Monday to Friday. Oh, skunked again. Looks like we'd have to wait another day. So we managed to fit it in within their ridiculous hours only to be told. So you, you even have any doctors for here? Three for years ago, Longueuil, Candiac, Brossard, St. Hubert, none. Why? <laughs> Ask the government. Ask the government? <laughs> no doctors, what, they don't pay, it's not enough money here? I or? don't know, but if you have cash someday, you can, you will have a doctor. <laughs> so some days if you have cash. That's it. Oh, well, I appreciate your honesty. Because we went to the clinic and I waited and I saw the doctor there and she said, "Come well, see a doctor here." Yeah, no, she said, yeah or see a family doctor. Go there, come here, go there. But there's a private clinic. Would you like to pay? Wait, hold up. A government employee recommending a private clinic? So believe it or not, after all of this, um, the lady upstairs, as you just saw, referred us to a private clinic. Uh, she seems to think that would be a little more efficient than uh, the Canadian government, but uh, as we said, that goes against the rules by which we're playing right now. We want to uh, experience the kind of healthcare that Canadian, uh, Canadians pay for with their tax dollars. So, as a result of sticking to their tax-funded healthcare experiment, they never were able to get that blood test done. <laughs> that whole experience was painful, quite frankly. And I myself experienced the same frustrations and obstacles on my last two or three visits to a so-called walk-in clinic. Fortunately, my symptoms were minor and disappeared on their own, but I have to say, I was utterly shocked when I arrived at my local walk-in clinic on a normal business day during normal business hours to find a sign on the door saying it was closed. And the sign on the door read something like, try again around 3 p.m. or call for an appointment. That completely defeats the whole purpose of quote-unquote walk-in clinic. Our unhealthy, uncaring healthcare system read the headline of January 3rd's National Post excerpt by Stephen Skivington, an excerpt from his book, This May Hurt a Bit, which was to be released on February 2nd and concerned Canada's healthcare system. Now, Skivington's excerpted essay in the National Post, unfortunately, doesn't really offer anything close to what I would consider a viable solution to Canada's sick care crisis. Although written in the current year, with the exception of the statistics and demographics cited, it's written in a manner as if to suggest the author's only now citing symptoms that were already chronic decades ago. He points out that there are five principles of the Canada Health Act. Public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. Though called the Canada Health Act, it's important to understand that this act is not about the delivery of health care services as such, but about the government funding of health care that originates from the federal level of government. Only provinces are technically empowered to actually administer and deliver the services themselves. In order to qualify for the federal subsidies, the provinces themselves must therefore adhere to the principles of the Canada Health Act, which means in practice the Canada Health Act is really the Canada Health Care Bribery Act particularly since provinces do not have to adhere to those principles if they're willing to forego the funding provided by the federal government. They never are, because they know that their costs are running out of control. Now, by public administration, the federal government means provincial government administration, whether directly or indirectly through regulatory bodies set up for that purpose. And it also means non-profit. 
By comprehensiveness, it means that, quote, provincial plans must cover all insured health services provided by hospitals, medical practitioners, or dentists, and similar or other additional services rendered by other healthcare practitioners, end quote. And the principle of portability insists that, quote, provinces must not impose any minimum period of residence or waiting period in excess of three months before residents of a province are eligible for or entitled to insured health services. After the waiting period, the new province or territory of residence assumes health care coverage. End quote. By universality, it is meant that, quote, all insured persons must be covered for insured health services provided for the plan on uniform terms and conditions, end quote. In other words, one size fits all. And of course, by accessibility, the principle states that, quote, each province's insurance plan must provide for insured services on uniform terms and conditions and on a basis that does not impede or preclude reasonable access to those services by insured persons. And yet nowhere in the Canada Health Act is either reasonable access or reasonable compensation defined, end quote. Now, of course, in practice, these theoretical principles are not being adhered to. That's obviously what the healthcare crisis is partially about. And that's a fact that the author, Stephen Skivington, attributes to the following explanation, and I found this the most interesting. Quote, Since the early 1960s, Canada's population has more than doubled, rising from 18.2 million in 1961 to 36.6 million in 2017. Meanwhile, per capita spending on health care during that same period increased more than 60 times. It was less than $100 per person in the early 1960s, while it's a whopping $6,604 per person in 2017. In 1961, 57% of health care in Canada was privately funded, while the rest was covered by government. Today, roughly 70% of health care is funded by the government, leaving approximately 30% covered by the private sector. At the same time that government coverage of health costs has been increasing, Canadian life expectancy has also increased, which sounds like a good thing, right? From 68 with males and 79 with females to 80 with males and 84 with females today. With the rise in life expectancy, there has been an out-of-control growth in chronic disease in the past few years. Today, it eats up more than 70% of health care costs in Canada. Obviously, given the spiraling costs of Canada's health care system, the status quo simply can't continue to be an option. Whether we amend the Canada Health Act, add some sunset clauses, or just plain scrap it, the time is fast approaching. We're doing nothing will be the worst course of action possible. Even with all the money being poured into our health care system, there's still not enough to fund patient demand. As a result, wait times are getting longer and longer, putting lives at risk and leading to an unconscionable amount of suffering by forcing people to wait mind-boggling amounts of time in order to access care. Our elected officials and civil servants have made a mockery of the principles of the health care system that they proclaim they will fight to the end to preserve, end quote. Now, Skivington's essay concludes with the usual economist call to permit more privatization of the system, including the delivery of services themselves and including the purchasing of private insurance options as well. All great as far as they go, but these things, 
you know, that, that are being called for were called for decades ago and remain as politically unpalatable today as they were back then. Now, that was about the Canada Health Act. But for those of us living in the province of Ontario, the more familiar form of socialized medicine was originally called OHIP, O-H-I-P, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. It's a term still used by many Ontarians today, even though OHIP cards today are referred to as simply a health card, and the Ontario Health Insurance Plan is simply referred to as Service Ontario. Originally, after being introduced as an insurance monopoly in 1969 by Ontario's progressive conservative government, Ontario's health insurance plan appeared like an insurance plan because there was actually a premium attached to having OHIP. The premiums covered only 18% of the cost, while the balance of the costs, 82%, were paid for out of general taxation and government deficits. Now, I recall when Ontarians were required to pay $30 a month. I used to pay it myself. And it was done on a quarterly basis, 90 bucks every three months. And you did it whether you were employed or not. Didn't matter. You paid that bill because you didn't want to get caught without your health insurance. But later, as the plan began to prove unsustainable and could not deliver on its promises, then Ontario Liberal Premier David Peterson, who was Premier between June 85 and October 1990, tightened yet another screw into healthcare's coffin by eliminating the OHIP premium entirely, a move which was, of course, cheered by everyone who religiously believed they could get something for nothing. Oh, but we're paying for it through our taxes, went the popular rationalization used to pretend that patients themselves were actually paying for a service paid for by others. But by getting rid of the premium, Peterson severed the last link between any obligation that the government had to provide health care services to those paying a premium. After all, now they couldn't claim they had any right to it, could they? They were just taxpayers like everybody else. And if you're not paying the premium, you don't even have anything you can say that you qualify on the basis of. So it was a brilliant move on part of the government to get rid of its obligation to the citizens that it kept promising it would follow through on. A fraudulent name, if ever there was one, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan was never a plan, nor was it insurance. Instead, OHIP changed the concept of insurance as a protector against costs incurred in medical emergencies and those rare health care cases where costs are simply not affordable into a health care free-for-all for everybody, from the first dollar coverage to the last dollar coverage. As a result, resources that might have been available for true medical emergencies became absorbed in expenditures relating to the routine and the common, or worse, to the ridiculous notion of, of preventative medicine of all things. Government spends millions on preventative medicine, mostly in the form of advertising, telling us what diet we should eat and what we should do and not go out in the sun. And uh, it, It's sickening. And because OHIP operated on many of the same principles as the Canada Health Act, universality meant that many patients who could have quite easily been able to pay their normal medical costs didn't need to do so, and they didn't. And the principle of public state administration, instead of lowering costs, was a guarantee of unchecked cost escalation, which is exactly what happened and continues to happen to this day. The only known way to legitimately lower costs is, ironically, to permit the profit motive to become the operative principle. That's just an economic fact, and you can't get around it whether you like it or not. So if you want to lower your costs, 
allow profit to reign supreme. Another guarantee of cost escalation was the principles of universality and comprehensiveness working in unison to forbid free market influence in the provision of health care services. It severed the link between producers and consumers, making it impossible to shop around for more economic or efficient ways to solve health care problems. To say nothing of the damage done by prohibiting deductibles on an insurance plan, and that was something doctors tried to compensate for by charging what they called extra billing charges or user fees, and then the governments would get all up in arms about it. And these debates continue to this day. It hasn't changed one iota. In 1967, 82% of all Ontarians already had health care insurance, and the province of Ontario had no income tax. By the Orwellian year of 1984, combined federal and Ontario provincial taxes grew by 750%, and the federal deficit grew from next to nil to over $25 billion in 1984. And as the whole Canadian Medicare plan began to crumble, the first people blamed for the failure were Canada's doctors and healthcare professionals, believe it or not. Left-wing health policy analysts attacked what they called, quote, the ailing credibility of doctors and accused the profession of, one, failing to protect the public interest, two, complaining about perceived threats to their status as independent businessmen, and three, being remiss in excluding certain foreign-trained doctors from practicing in Ontario. In 1993, the first ministers of the province met in Alberta where they concluded that Canada had too many doctors and that the supply should be politically limited, which is exactly what they did. Great idea, huh? Simply unconscionable, actually. Now, on this side of our upcoming bumper, here's Candace Owens, who was joined by panel members Brandon Tatum and Charlie Kirk, appearing at a campus forum on April 25th, where they were asked about socialized medicine by one of the students. On the return side of our bumper, from a 2014 MSNBC news item, coverage of just how Obamacare was affecting the people it was supposed to help the most. I know you mentioned uh, socialism and that being bad for Venezuela and other places, obviously. And I think we can all agree that capitalism is the best, I mean, it's really the best basis for an economy, right? I think you agree with that, yeah. But do you think there's any middle ground, where, well, not even middle ground, but <laughs> anywhere that you can take some aspects from socialism and not be end up like Venezuela? Because I see places like Canada, the United Kingdom, where they've implemented some socialistic policies like healthcare for all people. And that's a socialistic principle, but it's pretty popular in their countries, and yeah. they don't seem to be turning into Venezuela. Yeah, everybody loves Canadian healthcare except for the Canadians. I mean, I'm being serious. I'm being serious. If you haven't seen it, there's, there's a great video on YouTube where Steven Crowder actually just goes to Canada. Have you guys seen this video? He just goes to Canada, and he shows you what it's like to try to get health care. I mean, he's got no plot. He's got a hidden camera on him. He talks, and he's waiting in a, a waiting room. He says that his arm is broken, and he's in a waiting room. I think it was his arm uh, for eight hours, four hours, four and a half hours before he gives up the first day. And he literally can't get health care. He can't get anything basic looked at him because this, there's the universal health care. I literally lived with a Canadian for two years in New York City, and she would tell me that if you had a real medical emergency, they would come to America. Now, I will, I will say this. We have 
our healthcare system is a disaster and it should, we need a, a major makeover. It's very frustrating because it's actually not an example of free markets. It's not. There's, there's collusion happening between the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance. We don't know yeah, what I'm, anything I'm glad costs. You that up. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We don't know what anything costs. That is not a, free markets means I can look at the price system, I can, I can make decisions as a consumer. You cannot do that in America. So there, there, in my opinion, I would love if Trump completely revamped it and made it so that there wasn't all of this, um, these, just these walls, you can't say anything, everything's invisible, and then you get a bill, and it's like, hey, you owe $4,000 for that time that you were in the emergency room for 20 minutes. Literally happened to me last year, but I'm not gonna rant on it. Um, and so Charlie and I, we talk about this all the time, that we, we, we do not like the American healthcare system, but we do believe that an actual, true, free market healthcare system would be best. The question is, how do you get more people access to something that only a few people have? And that's markets. It's the only way that you get goods and products and services to more people. The second thing is countries like Canada and the UK and Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark have really, really high tax burdens to pay for it, which is not a compromise that I'm willing to put forth, that 50, 60, 70 percent taxes on top of an 18 percent VAT tax that essentially is a sales tax. I'm not willing to sacrifice that much liberty and that much of my freedom for some bureaucratic nightmare. Now, is it a perfect system? Of course not, because it's, too, it's largely too expensive, because we don't have the market that Candace talks about, because of the collusion between the insurance companies and the hospital companies. It's more cronyism than it is capitalism. It is, and the it's parts, cronyism. And the parts that we have in America that allow for market-based treatment, such as LASIK eye surgery, we talk about this a lot, where it's a vital organ. LASIK eye surgery used to cost $20,000 for a treatment for eye improvement. Now it's down to about $2,000 for the treatment. How is that possible? It went down in price, but up in quality. It's almost all cash because the insurance companies refused to cover it. They considered it a cosmetic need, despite it being a vital organ. Now, in the next 20, 30 years, the question should not be, oh, Medicare for all, which is really Medicaid for all, by the way. It's not Medicare for all. And we have Medicaid in this country. You know, newsflash, 62 million Americans are on some form of government-issued health care called Medicaid. And the approval ratings for Medicaid are in the sub-10%, sub people that actually enjoy Medicaid, the waiting lines, the things that aren't covered, and the, 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 the amount of waste in Medicaid is unbelievable. The other example of socialized health care we have in America is the Veterans Administration, which AOC calls a model for health care, which you have waiting lines, you have people literally dying on the phone waiting for treatment. The VA has a $180 billion a year budget. More than 50% of the VA's budget is spent on just administrative care. Markets have always worked. They've worked in everywhere they've been experimented. There will be outliers, there will be imperfections, but generally three things happen when you allow markets to exist. Prices go down, quality goes up, and more people get access to those goods over a longer period of time. Okay, well, I guess the biggest reason I think people, a large percent of Americans have been in support of a system like Canada and UK have where everyone else healthcare is because um, on the conservative side, there hasn't really been any specific plans to actually implement it. And before the election, Trump said everyone would have healthcare, it would be great. Haven't really seen much progress in that. So I'm wondering like, what would 
the plan well, B and what will we do to actually look, improve the situation? I think six more years, and I definitely think he's definitely spoken about it, and, and because he's been such a deliverer on all of his promises, I, I genuinely do believe he's going to take up this issue. It's something that I'm super vocal about because I totally agree that the American healthcare system is a disaster, but my whole thing is I don't need free healthcare. I just want to walk in the store and have it be affordable, right? Like when you go to CVS, you're not like, I wish Tyl all Tylenol was free. You're like, oh, I can afford this, and you buy it. And I think that we can get to that um, if we stop all of the colluding between the pharmaceutical companies and especially the insurance companies, which are scamming Americans in this moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tonight, we go inside one small local business in McKeesport. We watch what happens when workers learn for the very first time how the Affordable Care Act will impact them. Here is the new plan that we had to switch to that takes into account the Obamacare regulations. Everybody, it's what your month, new monthly premium is going to be for this plan. Last year's 6% premium increase has now exploded five-fold to an average 32% jump, and that is just for starters. That 32% increase includes increasing the deductible as well to try and get something modestly priced. Look at the numbers. Jeff and Dave used to have a $1,250 deductible. Since Obamacare went into effect, it's now jumped 60% to 2000 That's nothing compared to Brian, Christy, and Judy who have kids. They're going to pay twice that. Deductible's terrible. I mean, how many people actually can come up with that deductible money if they get into an emergency room? Dave's monthly premium goes up modestly by about 50 bucks. Christy, though, not so lucky. Her monthly premium jumps $260. That's 30 percent. $895 a month for health insurance is coming out of my, my, my pocket. That's a house payment for most people. Brian actually saves $77 a month, but that $4,000 family deductible? It's going to be a pretty big hit in the pocket. And Jeff is in the same boat. They call it the affordable health plan. There's nothing affordable about it. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Canadians rightly fear a health care system such as that in the United States, while Americans wrongly wish for a health care system like the one we have in Canada. But neither of the two countries is approaching the health care issue rationally, nor in a way that will address the needs of all in a way that is actually possible to achieve. The reason is that political interests on each side of the border have superseded the rights and interests of both doctors and patients, though perhaps in various differing ways and degrees. But fascist Obamacare and socialist single-payer rationed Canadian health care are simply two sides of the same political disease. The root of the problem is that what people want to hear from their politicians is some kind of solution that can offer both the results of free market capitalism and be completely free to the patient. Well, there simply is no such animal. Anyone who's being honest with himself realizes this. And I thought that the question asked by the student on the previous side of our last bumper was most revealing, wasn't it? We can all agree that capitalism is the best, he openly admits. And then he proposes, so let's try socialism. Why would he not want what he already acknowledged was the best? Simple, because he doesn't want to pay for it. 
That's an immoral desire, and it represents the essence of everything that's evil about socialism and the left and about socialized medicine. Maybe you thought none of us would notice, but I couldn't help but notice his very nervous laugh as he asked, is there some kind of middle ground, any way to take aspects of socialism and not end up like Venezuela? <laughs> well, he knew very well the answer to his question was no, but still practiced to deceive himself in the hopes that he might be able to get away with getting something for nothing. See how willingly people will get tangled up in their own moral webs of deceit? And just as we've been emphasizing on several of our own past broadcasts, there's no such thing as a centrist or middle-of-the-road position to take between the left and right polarity that represents socialism and capitalism together. I think that student was well aware of the contradiction the minute it came out of his mouth, and that was part of the cause of his nervous laugh. Fortunately, Candace Owens moved the discussion forward in a way that you just won't hear today's politicians ever attempt. I don't need free health care, she said. I just wish it was affordable. And that, exactly, should be the principle on which any sound health care solutions should be pursued. Not free, but affordable. And what's wrong with that? But the left wants no part of affordable. It wants free. Faced with the unaffordability of their own various Medicare plans, and that's at the government level, not just the patient level, politicians on both sides of the border are scrambling to rescue plans that have become unsustainable, which in the end just means more rationing, more cutbacks, restrictions, while leaving patients to fend for themselves. If you want something for free, in the end, you'll get exactly what you didn't pay for. But under a single-payer system like the one we have in Ontario, even if you had the money and wanted to pay for your health care, that's against the law because then you'd be able to get in line ahead of the person who has no means to pay for his health care. Ontario's recently elected progressive conservative government, under the leadership of Doug Ford, is planning yet another overhaul of Ontario's health care system. A February 2nd Canadian press report made it pretty clear in its headline that things are likely to get much worse before they get better, if they ever even do. Quote, Health Minister says no to two-tier medicine, reads the headline. The Ontario government's transformation of the health care system will not include two-tier care, private hospitals, or making patients pay for more services out of pocket, the health minister said. No two-tier, Christine Elliott told the Canadian press. People will pay for the health care services through OHIP, Elliot said. One thing that I think all of us in Ontario agree on is that everyone should have access to a publicly funded health care system and that people should pay for their services with their OHIP card and there should be no opportunity for people to skip in line or move ahead in line over other people because of monetary considerations, she said. End quote. Now, it would never occur to a socialist like Elliot that there shouldn't even be any lines to wait in in the first place. But if that's where this government is at in its thinking, then you can understand the source of my frustration when discussing this issue. The debate has not moved forward an inch since the very beginnings of OHIP in the late 1960s. And as long as this kind of backward political thinking continues, conditions in healthcare will just keep getting worse. And stories like the ones we're about to hear, again from Stephen Crowder's 2009 Canadian healthcare testimonials, will continue to be the norm and not an exception to the rule. 
you know, maybe we were just the odd ones out. I've got a face with a lot of punch appeal, so maybe people might not be likely to give me the best treatment. So we decided to check with other fellow Canadians to see the kind of treatment they'd received. I was at work and um, we were ripping down some stuff, doing some demolition, and I stepped on a board that had a rusty nail. And I went to the clinic and I waited and waited. And then when I saw a doctor, they said, they ran out of tetanus shots and to come back Thursday. I didn't go back. What day was it when you actually went in? That was Monday. Did they know that you had stepped on a rusty nail? Uh, yeah, I, I told them I stepped on a rusty nail and I guess that didn't matter. Uh, maybe I should have sat on it or something to get their attention. I don't know what I could have done. I have no idea. You mentioned that Hayden was, was pretty sick and you had to take her to the hospital. Um, what was wrong with her and what did they do about that? She had a gastro and normally it lasts 12 hours for babies, but for her it was going on two or three days. So we were getting worried and she wasn't, she was very lifeless and lethargic. So we took her to a hospital and we ended up waiting seven hours before they saw her. And when they saw her, they just said she has gastro and they send us home. But when we took her home, her fever got really bad and we were getting scared for her. So we took her to the children's hospital where there we waited two hours just to see a nurse. And they ended up keeping us for almost a week. So at the other hospital, they just generalized her. They didn't actually look into her symptoms or see that she was really sick. They just sent us home. And that's what happens a lot. <laughs> okay, so, um, but two hours, actually, that's really good, even for, for baby that emergency. Was, that was just to see the nurse, though. And then we had to wait after to see a doctor, so... I'm sure because they see a lot of children with gastro that they didn't actually listen to that she was sick for more than the normal time for a baby to be sick, so yeah, it happens a lot with a lot of people. You have to see sometimes a specialist, a dermatologist. Um, what's that like? Well, basically, um, you would wait anywhere from five to seven months, and um, it, it takes maybe maximum of three or four minutes to get diagnosed and get your prescription. Um, and if that doesn't work, which in my case, I just went to uh, clear up my skin, and um, it didn't work, so I have to go get something else. But uh, it's, it takes so long that I just, it's kind of discouraging to make an appointment, so I just end up not making one at all. I would have to make one right away uh, as soon as I saw that it wasn't working, but sometimes you don't know if it's working or not until later on, so it could take a good good year and a half to, to actually get the right kind of medicine for, for what, what you need. There are millions of other stories like these out there. Consider that the average wait time to see a specialist in Canada is 17.3 weeks, and that as of 2008, over 2.8% of the country's population are on waiting lists to receive special treatment, and there are bound to be a few unhappy campers. The truth is that these horror stories are so common because the Canadian healthcare system is overburdened and because of its inefficiency is underfunded. To keep healthcare spending to a minimum, they have to ration it. But at least it's free, right? Well, not really when you take into account the average income tax that someone in Quebec, Canada would have to pay. Do these numbers look ridiculous? They should. The truth is that a huge amount of tax is required to keep the system afloat because, like all government programs, it's proven to be terribly inefficient. Even Claude Castonguay, the man who headed the government commission in Quebec that led to creating this system, has declared it a crisis and has acknowledged the need to eliminate the government monopoly on healthcare through allowing more privatization.
I didn't get to ask you about the rumor that you were running for governor or somebody asked you to run for governor or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure that's California. Right. They wanted me to run for governor. This is pre-Reagan or Reagan, he prefers. But, and I asked him how much uh, it, they paid. Yeah. And he said it was $35,000 a year. Well, at that time, I was getting 16000 a week for doing the quiz show. Mm-hmm. So I tell them, unless they get raised to that sum, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. Yeah. If, you, if you had it to do over, would you uh, do anything different? There were rumors that you once wanted to be other things besides a performer. I wanted to be a doctor at one time. You did? Yeah. Horse doctor. <laughs> no, really. I, I wanted to be a doctor. But that was before Medicare. I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> In those days, the doctor could keep all the money he made. Now he keeps about 20%. But what they've done, the doctors, they've raised the price of everything. Mm-hmm. So if you go and get your leg sawed off, it used to cost maybe $85. It'd be about 140 now. It's hardly worth it, is it? No, it's hardly worth it. <laughs> $200, I'd seriously consider it. <laughs> well, it. both legs. Then I could say I haven't got a leg to stand on. You know? <laughs> That was from a 1969 interview with Groucho Marx by Dick Cabot, and it just goes to show how long this problem has been in existence. It's nothing new in 2019. As writer Murray Hopper wrote in a Freedom Party of Ontario publication called Consent way back in 1989, socialized medicine has become the sacred cow of Canadian politics, and no matter how many people's lives it cripples and destroys, nothing will change. Quote, Thanks to government propaganda over the years, any rational examination of the basic flaws in our healthcare system is precluded. Since the founding principles of Medicare, which include universality, portability, comprehensiveness, and public administration, have been elevated to the status of holy writ, no politician dares question them, end quote. Kind of an early form of political correctness, isn't it? And he nailed it it's still exactly the same immoral environment in which we operate today. Everyone has a right to health care, say socialized health care's most vocal advocates. Now that's what they say, but what they're really trying to tell us is that everyone has a right to free health care, which is an entirely different concept and unattainable. Here in Canada, where we are constantly told that every individual has a right to health care, the reality of the situation is this. Every individual has an obligation to financially prop up an inefficient and overburdened and rationed system of health care with no absolute right to any kind of treatment whatsoever. It just, it's not there. They get whatever the politicians of the day choose to give them. And they delist services regularly. And how can anyone possibly argue that we have a right to our health care when we aren't even allowed to pay for it out of pocket, where doctors aren't even allowed to set prices or to do anything like that. There's no rights involved here at all. There's only one way to achieve what we might be able to call affordable health care, through a completely private, voluntary health care system operating on a free market. As Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever put it not so long ago, quote, I want a health care system in which patients are not beggars, but choosers, end quote. Exactly. It's not health care that needs to be privatized, by the way. It's the consumer who needs to be privatized. And consider the benefits of the marketplace transaction where the user of a service pays for it. It links the producer to the beneficiary, that means doctor to patient. It provides incentives to reduce waste. 
It provides information as to what users are willing to pay. It saves in tax revenues. It introduces competition and a pricing system that allows consumers to comparison shop. That's some of the things that Candace Owens was advocating, and she's exactly right. It's the only way it'll happen. And without these market forces in play, costs will always escalate, and rationing will continue to get tighter and tighter and tighter until there's nothing left to ration. Now for the really big question that's usually on the minds of most people. So what do we do about those who simply can't afford to pay for the health care? Just abandon them? Well, no, of course not. Government will always be there to help the poorest of the poor and the neediest of the needy. Always has been. But government won't even be able to do that if we stay on the current socialist path we're on. We need a really deeply ingrained change in mindset. And it begins with this understanding. The fact that someone may be in poverty is not a health care problem. It's a poverty problem, an income problem for those who have the problem. A person who's too poor to pay for routine health care costs is probably also too poor to pay for a lot of other services, perhaps even their food and rent. Now, if governments decided to help the poor pay for their groceries, and if they took the approach taken with so-called universal health care, that would mean that instead of giving money to the specific people who need it, you take over and monopolize the entire grocery store industry and force 100% of the people to stand in lines and receive rationed food. <laughs> Which, by the way, is exactly what's been done in socialized countries who monopolize their industries. Can't afford to take public transit? Well, we won't help you with that little bit of extra cash you might temporarily need will take over and completely monopolize the entire public transit system and force everyone to use it on our terms. There's a solution for you. That's how politicians think. Do either of these approaches make any sense in any way when it comes to these services? If the answer is no, then why can't we see what is self-evident when it comes to health care services? The key approach to making health care affordable for everyone is not an economic one or a political one. It's a moral one. And as long as the majority wants to get something for nothing, they'll get exactly what they won't pay for. It's value for value. You can't fool the law of supply and demand. The tragedy of all this is multiplied by the knowledge that in a free market environment, that means one free of state intervention, free of prohibition and control, the possible solutions to making health care affordable for all are practically infinite. But they will never come in the form of a one-size-fits-all prescription. And just as social justice means not justice, and social democracy means not democracy, so too socialized health care means not health care. Until we have a free market in health care, the most reliable health care plan you can possibly have is simply to never get sick or never get injured. And of course, the best part of that plan is that by staying healthy, you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Last week on emergency medical treatment. That never gets any easier. Quickly, doctor! 
This patient is incredibly poorly. My God, I don't think I've ever seen anyone looking so peaky. Get me the medicine in here right now. Stand aside, Doctor. This is my patient. I'm doing the medical treatment here. I'm sorry, Steve. I can't let you do that. You're just the sort of doctor who makes people go to sleep for operations, whereas I specialise in people who've been in the wars in this particular way. The medicine, Doctor. You fool nurse. This is medicine for a different illness from this one. Am I going to be all right, Doctor? Yes, definitely. But we need to give you a spoonful of the right medicine and maybe a tablet. <laughs> I'm afraid this isn't going to taste very nice. Stand back. I'm going to use the electric shock that's a sort of medicine if you're very ill, but can make you a sort of ill if you're fine. Clear. <laughs> oh, no. He was fine. Now he's poorly from too much electric.